0: And let me ask you also to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 3, as we continue our study in the gospel according to Mark, looking this morning at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, and thinking about how to determine your fate and your family. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35 says this Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. "'Unless he first binds the strong man, "'then indeed he may plunder his house. "'Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven "'the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. "'But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit "'never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. "'For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit.' And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that your word is to us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his teaching. We thank you for Mark and the apostle Peter who preserved his teaching for us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who superintended all the writings of scripture and who is active in working out the power of the scriptures. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would demonstrate the power of your scriptures this morning in our hearts. Remind us that this is not just a book, but this is the very word of God. It comes to us now from your throne. You, it's, it's not as though you have spoken in the past, though you have, but you continue to speak through your holy word. We ask, O God, that as you reveal to us continually who Jesus is, you would help us to cling to him. Lord, I know that, or I assume at least for the majority of people here, we do cling to him already. But I ask that you would use this passage, in particular the mistake of Jesus' own family, to cause us to cling to him that much more. And Lord, we pray for those who are here who do not know you, that the veil would be removed from their eyes, and that they would respond rightly to Jesus. That they would see that he truly is the Son of God, and you would lead them to repent of their sins and to believe in the gospel which he preached. The good news that though all are condemned as sinners, there is forgiveness. There is righteousness, it comes through Jesus Christ. By his death, he paid for our sins. By his resurrection, he secured our justification. By his ascension, he proves that he is the king, and by his promise coming, we will one day live with him in glory. So, Lord, we pray that you would press the truths of your word onto our very hearts this morning. We believe what you say that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Apologetics is the teaching and the set of beliefs that we use to defend the Christian faith not to apologize for the Christian faith but to defend the Christian faith and if you've ever studied apologetics you've learned of course many different things one of one of those things perhaps is how to answer certain questions how to get to the gospel say from something like creation But I wonder if you've ever been sharing the gospel with someone before and out of nowhere they ask you a question or they bring up a topic that completely throws you off track. Years ago when I lived in Indianapolis in the pitiful days before I was married, I had a neighbor whose name was Carrie. He was a good man, you know, in the sense that a sinner can be. He was a nice man, loved talking to Carrie every time I pulled up. In those days, I had a truck. Also, I miss it dearly. But I would talk to Kerry very often. Almost every time I pulled up, he would be outside hanging out, and we would talk. And he knew I was a Christian at that time. I was in Bible college, and uh, he knew where I stood. and And I would talk to him about his own soul, and we would have conversations about this. And one of those times, I was sharing the gospel with him, and I don't remember the details of the conversation, but out of the blue, he just asked me a question that stopped me dead in my tracks. He said, well, what about cavemen? And I have to confess to you, to my shame, i just thought to myself, what about cavemen? And the conversation just crashed and burned from there on. And that wasn't the only conversation I had with Carrie. Sadly, I never got to see Carrie repent of his sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the question itself totally threw me and left me wondering well, what in the world? How did cavemen come up? Well, since then, I've learned what I think would be a more biblical approach that. Regardless of whatever twists and turns a gospel conversation might take, the goal and the objective is to always keep the conversation centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the reality is that no matter what someone else might want to, or what someone might want to talk about instead of Jesus, and of course we would be kind to go down those trails, but then to figure out how to get it back to Jesus. But regardless, whatever else someone may want to talk about, the reality is that there is no more important person, no more important subject than the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is that the whole world hangs on Jesus. And the reality is that the fate of every person here this morning, every person who has ever lived depends upon how they respond to Jesus. Think what you want about cavemen. Think what you want even about creation. It will not save your soul. But if you come to believe what's right about Jesus Christ that he is indeed the son of God that Mark has been telling us all about, then that very belief will save your life and will change it forever. The, scripture, the, the testimony of scripture points us to the reality of the power and the authority and the significance of Jesus Christ. It's not so much the response to, in the person to Jesus that is most important, though that certainly is important. But the reality is it's the one they are responding to who is most important and most significant. Let me remind you of what the Bible says about Jesus, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Or there's the testimony of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one, verses one to three says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Do you know what is included in the universe? You are. Jesus upholds you by the word of his power. And so we can understand then why the reality is that your response to Jesus, your response to the one that upholds you by the word of his power, the one who holds you together, the one for whom you have been created, you can understand then that why your response to him is so significant. C.S. Lewis understood that rightly, as have many other Christians and masters of apologetics. In his book, which were first a series of lectures given over the radio after World War II called Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us open, that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me to be obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world, Lewis says, in human form. I'm not sure if C.S. Lewis was drawing upon this passage in the Gospel of Mark when he thought of that and when he wrote that, but certainly it fits identically with what Mark is teaching us this morning. That you can take Jesus as anything you want to take him as. But there is only one way to take him. That is the right way. And regardless of whichever way you take him, how you take him, how you respond to him will determine both your fate and will determine your family. Who wouldn't want to determine their fate And their family. God is showing us here this morning in this passage that you have the ability to determine both of those things based upon the way you respond to Jesus. Mark has been showing us, and he's declared it from verse 1 of chapter 1, that Jesus is the Son of God. So far, we've had the testimony of the father from heaven to confirm that. And surprisingly, we've had the testimonies of the demons from hell to confirm that. In Mark's gospel so far, no human being has recognized what Mark is determined to have you and I recognize that Jesus really is the son of God but he continues to unfold this reality for us, and he does so in some very surprising ways. Here in this passage, he shows us that those who were closest to Jesus, his own blood relation, didn't understand who he was. And he shows us that the scholars of the day the ones who were schooled in the Old Testament scriptures, the ones who knew the prophecies about the Messiah, completely missed the reality that the Messiah was standing right there in front of them. I ask you then, is it possible today for us to miss that truth? Is it possible that there is someone here who has missed the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Is it possible that there is someone here who mistakenly thinks that they have been born into being a Christian? Is it possible that there is someone here who mistakenly thinks that it is their close association. They've gone to church for X number of years. They study their Bible. They, they do all the Christian things. Is it possible that there is someone here who thinks that that is the thing that gets them to Jesus? You know the answer to that. And I ask the question because you know the answer to that. The answer is, yeah, it's possible. But is it also possible that you are here this morning... Because you recognize Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And in all your imperfections, in all your flaws, in all your ongoing sins, you still recognize on a daily basis that Jesus is the Son of God. We actually see all of these responses in this passage this morning, And so I'd like to use, I'm not the only one to do it or the first one to do it, but I'd like to use C.S. Lewis's indicators, his, his markers of how to respond to Jesus this morning. We need to understand that how you respond to Jesus will determine both your fate and your family. And so in this passage, Mark gives us three options for deciding who Jesus is that determine both your fate and your family. Three options for deciding who Jesus is that determine both your fate and your family. First of all, as Lewis pointed out, you can determine that Jesus is a lunatic, just like his family did in verses 20 to 21. Look at him again with me. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. In verse 20, Mark gives us the setting. He paints the picture. And he shows us how this passage connects with the previous passage by saying, essentially, Jesus had identified the 12 apostles. And now, after that work was done, he goes home. He goes back to his house in Capernaum, wherever that was, Perhaps it was Peter's house, perhaps it was another house, but he goes back to his home and who follows after him? The crowd. The crowd had gathered once again and they were so, there were so many of them and their desire to get to Jesus, their need to be around Jesus was so strong that Mark points out something very simple to us and yet something that we can all relate to in the pain of our stomachs. They could not even eat. Perhaps they couldn't eat because the house was so crammed full of people and they couldn't make their way to the kitchen. Perhaps they couldn't eat because the house was so loud and the needs were coming at Jesus so quickly and there was just no time to eat. Mark doesn't tell us. What he tells us is is that the crowd had created another troubling situation for Jesus and his disciples, another obstacle to the ministry of Jesus, so much so that he couldn't even eat a meal. And then in the the masterful way of telling the story, Mark sets the scene, and then he zooms from Capernaum back to probably Nazareth to the house of Jesus, where verse 31 and 35 tell us, his mother and his brothers were. Verse 21 tells us that when his family heard about it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now, some of our translations here say instead of when his family heard about it, they say something like, and when his people or when those around him heard about it. Literally, the Greek reads something like that. Those around him or those close by him, those beside him it could mean. And it's actually a, a, a connecting, a way of Mark connecting that group, those who were close by him, with the other group down in the last section of this passage. Look at verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him. Same Greek construction there that we find up here that the ESV descri- or translates as his family. Mark is painting pictures for us and showing us contrasts, and here we can understand that it's talking about his family because it's his family that comes in verse 31 his mother and brothers come and they they stand outside the house where Jesus is gathered and they call him out this is not the way that we would stand outside someone's house and call them out but this was a more authoritative call in those days most especially when your family called you you came no questions asked I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit there. All that to say that regardless of how your Bible chooses to translate this phrase, it's a phrase that refers to his family, meaning those who were his closest relatives. Why does Mark want to highlight that they were his closest relatives? He wants to highlight that they were his closest relatives because of what they were saying about him. They hear about what's happening. Perhaps they heard about his ministry. Perhaps they heard about the fact that the crowds were pressing in on him so heavily that he couldn't even eat. You know how moms are. Bless their hearts, truly. If a mom hears that her son is working so hard and is being so pressed in by a crowd that number one, he's almost going to get squashed by them so his disciples have to get a boat ready and number two, the need is so pressing, he's not even eating food. A mom's going to take care of that problem, right? Get the guy a bologna sandwich or something. I take it you don't like bologna. (laughs) Me neither, actually. So whatever it is they hear about, Mark just says they hear about it, they hear about what's going on, and they determine that they're going to do something about what's going on, and what they determine to do is to go out and seize him. That's a strong word, isn't it? In other places in Mark and throughout the New Testament, it's translated as arrest him. In fact, it's the very same word that describes John the Baptist's arrest and will later describe Jesus's arrest. It's not just that they want to go talk some sense into him. No, no. They want to go, take him by force, probably bring him back home, get him a meal, and let him get some sleep. Why? Because they're saying he's out of his mind. He's loony. He's gone crazy. He's lost it. And so they determine that Jesus is a lunatic. And we're going to see a little bit later, that this is not their final determination by God's grace. But Mark wants to highlight for us that it is possible to have a a closeness to Jesus that is so close as a family tie and still misunderstand who Jesus is and misunderstand the mission for which Jesus came. Think to Peter. Peter. Jesus, uh, Peter rightly pronounces Jesus as the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You're here to save the Jewish people. And Jesus says, blessed are you. That has been revealed to you from heaven. And then Jesus goes on to tell them how he has come to save people through his substitutionary death. And Peter says to him, no way, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Satan. Peter was on the mountaintop of professing who Jesus rightly is, and then he comes quickly crashing down into the valley, so much so that Jesus attributes Peter's attitude and words to Satan. It shows us, doesn't it, something that we already know, but something that we perhaps too often forget. Even Christians can be wrong sometimes even Christians who are saved by the grace of God will never lose that salvation. Even we can be wrong and outside of the will of God at times. And so that reminds us of the ongoing need for humility, doesn't it? Paul says, be careful if you think you stand, lest you fall. He wasn't talking to unbelievers. He was talking to the church at Rome. And so Jesus' family determine that he's a lunatic. He's lost his mind. He's maybe suffering from the fatigue and the exhaustion and the starvation that he is perhaps feeling. But regardless of what it is, they determine that they've got to go and do something about this son of Mary's and this brother of these guys. Because he's just completely lost his mind. He's gone bonkers. And so you can determine if you would like to that Jesus is a lunatic, but it won't go well for you. That's the first option that Mark gives to us, that upon deciding if you choose that Jesus is a lunatic will seal your fate and decide your family in a very negative way. But then he gives us a second one as well. And it comes from the scribes response to Jesus. Secondly, you can decide that Jesus is a liar. History proves the existence of Jesus just as much, in fact, even more so than it proves the existence of any of the Caesars. How do we know anyone alive before today actually existed? Well, it's been written down. It's been verified by eyewitnesses, and there are no credible claims to undermine that. The reality is, Jesus is real, and you have to deal with him. So you can decide if you want that Jesus is a liar, just as the scribes decide. We pick it back up in verse 22, and you'll, you'll notice the Mark set the scene in verse 20, and then in verse 21, he pans the camera back to the probably the boyhood house of Jesus, where his mother and brothers are, which was likely still in Nazareth, and so he pans the camera back up north into Capernaum, and he, looks, uh, he, he fixes us in on what's happening inside of the house. Why? Because the mother and brothers need some time to travel from Nazareth to Capernaum. And so Mark zooms us in on the action inside of the house and that action begins with some men who have come from Jerusalem. Verse 22 says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. The scribes, we've already met them a number of times but I'll just remind you, the scribes were the Bible scholars of the day. They were the ones who best knew their Bibles. Not only were they functioned somewhat like lawyers, but they were also the ones who were tasked with the job of hand-copying the word of God in its exact, precise nature. And if they ever messed it up, they went through an elaborate process of destroying it and then went through another elaborate process of purifying themselves before they could ever pick up the pen again. They were the ones who knew their Bibles. They were the ones who should have known something is happening here that smells a whole lot like what Isaiah has been talking about, etc. Of all the people in Israel that should have known who Jesus was, it was the scribes who should have known who Jesus was. And so they come down from Jerusalem, not that they have gone south, they've actually traveled north, but they've come down in elevation and they've come down in significance. Jerusalem is the heart of Israel. So you always come down from Jerusalem. We can understand then, since they've come down from Jerusalem, word must have spread all the way to Jerusalem once the the Pharisees had plotted with the Herodians that it was time to kill Jesus word would have spread to Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin was located. And so there were plans, there were plots, there were schemes to kill Jesus. But there needed to be a delegation that was sent out in order to discredit the ministry of Jesus because let's face it, this guy was a problem to the established religion of the day. And so they send out their best and the brightest, the scribes, and they go with a message to tell everyone that Jesus is a big fat liar. That although he may claim to be from God and although the people may say that he's from God, in fact even the unclean spirits tell people that this is the son of God. The scribes wanted everyone to know it's not true. He's actually from the other side. The bad guy from Satan himself. And they call him here Beelzebul and you can read all kinds of different things about the origination of Beelzebul, comes from the, uh, the, the word Baal, and then was later turned into Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. And here, Mark calls him Beelzebul, and there's some debate on who it is that he's talking about, but Jesus silences the debate, the debate by just explaining in his explanation to the scribes that they're a bunch of fools when he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Who is Beelzebul? Satan. Who is the prince of demons? Satan. So you'll notice, again, Mark emphasizes what is being said about Jesus. First, his family says he's out of his mind, and now the scribes are saying he's possessed by Satan. Everything he does is in the power of Satan. It's important for us to notice that as we begin to unravel that that age-old perplexing question of what is the unforgivable sin. So they make their claim, and then Jesus begins to answer their claim. In verse 23, he calls them to him, and he says to them in parables. Notice who's taking charge here. Who's the official delegate from the leadership of Israel? The scribes. But who's exerting his authority over the delegate from Jerusalem? Jesus. And what are they doing in response? They're obeying. They come to him. They have to. He's the son of God. This is a God-ordained appointment, a God-ordained conflict. And so he calls them to him and Mark lets us know that he begins to speak to them in parables, which is the first time in the gospel of Mark that that word occurs. You perhaps, likely if you've been in the church a while, you know what a parable is. Next week when we begin chapter four, we're going to see a a good, great parable. But look with me at chapter four, verses 10 to 12 to explain why now Jesus begins to speak to these particular people in parables. Mark 4:10 to 12 says, and when he was alone, those around him, same thing as Mark has used in chapter 3, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Back to chapter three, Jesus begins to speak to them in parables because they are outsiders to the kingdom of God and to the plan of God. Jesus is not concerned with begging them, pretty please believe in me. The authoritative son of God says, this is who I am, take it or not. And so he speaks to them in parables, and he first of all explains to them the ridiculousness of their accusation. He says to them, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. You get the point, right? Jesus says, if what you're saying is true, if I do what I do by the power of Satan, then that means that Satan is fighting against Satan as I cast out unclean spirits. And if Satan is now fighting against Satan, then he's going to lose. His kingdom will fall, his house is divided. That's it for him. So Jesus is pointing out the ridiculous nature of their accusation. Listen. I'm not under the power of Satan because if I were, I would be working for Satan, not against Satan. Obvious, right? But the reality is, Jesus says, uh, he cannot st- if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. That part wasn't is true, isn't it? Satan is coming to an end but not because he's divided against himself, but because the one who is the Son of God has taken on flesh. And as C.S. Lewis said, has entered into enemy-occupied territory in order to save souls from his clutches. And this is what Jesus explains then in verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Now I would remind you, Mark told us that this is a what? A parable. So that means you have to take the story and put the pieces together and do a little bit of interpretation. But it's not very hard to interpret what Jesus is talking about. Who is the strong man that Jesus is talking about? Satan. Satan is the strong man that Jesus is talking about. What is the strong man's house that Jesus is talking about? The world. And at the same time, who is the one that is entering into the strong man's house, binding the strong man, and plundering his goods? Jesus. Jesus. So if there's a strong man and someone goes into his house and binds that strong man, who's the stronger one? The binder of the strong man, right? Jesus is making it crystal clear, Satan is strong. He's stronger than you and I, but he's not stronger than the Son of God. Jesus has been demonstrating this reality. How? By telling the demons, shut up, leave them alone. Get out of here. Close your mouth, you unclean spirit. And what do they do? (laughs) Fall down at his feet and declare who he really is? Out of here, gone. So we need to understand that what Jesus is saying is that the one who is the binder of the strong man The one who, in fact, is Daniel 7's son of man, whom the ancient of days has given dominion to, power to, authority to. He's here, and his name is Jesus. Is there anything that scares you? Look to Jesus. Is there anything that frightens you because it's powerful and strong, even Satan or his demons? Look to Jesus. Jesus is demonstrating the reality that he is the binder of the strong man and that he is plundering the house of the strong man most surely by his casting out of unclean spirits as Mark calls them, isn't he? But we need to understand that a couple of things. First of all, that was prophesied about the servant of the Lord In Isaiah 49, verses 24 to 25, it says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? You see what he's asking there? Can someone take the mighty's prey? Think of a lion. If a lion makes a kill, are you going to swoop in there and take it away from that lion? Well, you could try, but you're also going to be prey. That's the point of the question, right? The answer is no, Not unless they're stronger than that lion. Not unless, in fact, it is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse 25 continues, For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Who is that speaking That's Jesus, my friends. That is Jesus. And this is what he is explaining as he binds the strong man. This is what John says in 1 John 3, 8. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. But let me ask you a question. Is that a reference only to Jesus casting out demons? No, it is a reference to Jesus saving souls. We need to build a a quick, short biblical theology of this. So turn to Ephesians chapter two with me. Ephesians chapter two is one place we can go to see this reality fleshed out for us. A passage you are likely familiar with, but I want you to hear it and understand it in the light of what Jesus has just said about binding the strong man and plundering his house. Starting in verse one, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience. Who is that? Satan. And Paul explains to the Ephesians church and God explains to Applegate Community Church that at one time, you Christian were doing that. That was your fate at one time. You were following Satan whether you knew it or not. verse three continues, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when Jesus says that he is here to bind the strong man and to plunder his house, you Christian are evidence that he is not a liar. How is it that you came to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Were you just smart enough one day? Did it just dawn on you, oh, this Christian thing's a really good idea? No. Jesus went into the house of the strong man and he flicked him out of the way. Get out of here. And he said, You're coming with me, you're mine. I love you. You're mine. No more will the enemy oppress you. No more will he deceive your darkened mind. Be alive. Come with me. What a friend we have in Jesus, right? This is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even Satan himself can stand against the Son of God. There are all kinds of applications and implications we could make against, about that. And my friend, I don't know what you're struggling with and I don't know what sin continues to plague you. I don't know what it is that makes you feel defeated and as though you can never get it right, but I want to tell you that if Jesus has saved you, then your biggest problem has been solved and everything else will work itself out if you keep following Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to plunder the house of the strong man because he is the son of God. Let's go back to Mark chapter three then. As we have a a better understanding and I think I hope a, a more personal and a more relevant and practical understanding of the strength of the very son of God who plunders Satan's house. Jesus then explains something about the gravity of their accusation against him in verse 28. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter or literally whatever blasphemies they blaspheme, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. You probably know, you may have even struggled with the same thing yourself. You probably know someone who, at some point in their life, has significantly and seriously struggled with the thought that they may have committed the unpardonable sin. Am I right? Raise your hand if you know someone or if you ever have struggled. Okay, I thought more of you would, but you still made my point, thanks. I have a good friend who years ago plunged himself into a deep, dark depression because he was convinced that he had, he had committed the unpardonable sin because before he was a Christian, he blasphemed God. Blasphemy is... To, to slander, to speak ill of someone. And of course, the greatest blaspheme is blasphemy against God, right? But this is where careful, pay, careful attention to the Bible and good Bible study habits are so important. We so often grab one verse Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And we forget the verses that come around that verse. Verse 29 says something deeply encouraging. Sorry, verse 28 says something deeply encouraging. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. And verse 30 Helps us to understand what it is that is, Mark calls, the eternal sin or the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin. It is not committing suicide like the Roman Catholic Church will teach you. A Christian can do that and be forgiven in heaven. What is the unpardonable sin? Verse 30 is the key. They were saying, He has an unclean spirit. What is the sin that cannot be forgiven? attributing the power of Jesus to the power of Satan. Can't be forgiven. Now I want you to hear me clearly, something you probably already know. If you die in your sins in unbelief and rejection against Jesus Christ, you will not be forgiven. But if at any point before then you realize that Jesus is the Son of God, and you repent of your sins, and you believe the gospel, even if it's with your dying breath, you will be welcomed into heaven as a child of God. How do we know that? Well, Paul makes it pretty clear for us in his example and in his life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul explains something to Timothy that he already knew. Starting in verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Blasphemy against God can be forgiven. But what's the key? You have to seek forgiveness. The scribes were calling what was good evil. They were so resolute in their opposition against Jesus, they wouldn't listen to him. And they wouldn't listen to anyone else. And so it seems, at least in that moment, that Jesus gave them over to their sins. There would be no forgiveness for them if they remained in that state. So we need to make sure that we don't just focus on the unforgivable, unpardonable sin, but we remember the reality that Jesus says, if anyone comes unto me, I will in no wise cast him out. What's the key to determining your fate? It is seeking forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the key. And so the scribes were saying that Jesus was a liar. And then finally, the third response, the third option that you can choose is that Jesus is the Lord. Verses 31 to 35 come back to Jesus' family and they focus in on one particular group who is not outside of the house, but who is seated around Jesus because they recognize who he is and they want to follow him as disciples. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. We know that the house was so full, something was going on so that Jesus and his disciples couldn't eat. So perhaps his mother and his brothers couldn't force their way into the house. But I think more likely what was happening was Jesus's mother and brothers were attempting to exert authority over Jesus. We're not going in there, you're coming out here. You crazy man. You know what it's like if you've ever administered discipline to your child. No, no, no. I'm not coming to you. You come to me. And so I think this was what was happening. They were attempting to exert authority over him by sending word into the house and calling him out, which any other person in those days would have said, of course, I'm coming right now. Because the family was everything, and, and in that, this culture still today, the family is everything. And we get some carryover of it ourselves, where we often say family first, right? But is that biblical? Verse 32 says, and a crowd was sitting around him. Who do you think Mark wants you to focus on? Where's this crowd now? They're sitting around him. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means to be a learner. Why do you think they're sitting around him? It wasn't because he had something to eat. The guy was hungry. It was because they knew who Jesus was. And they were in awe of his teaching. And they just couldn't get enough. This is why Christians love Bible teaching. This is why Christians who understand rightly who Jesus is love to digest their Bibles. This is why they don't just pick it up on Sunday and put it back down when they drive home, but every day they're meditating on the Word of God. Why? Because they know who Jesus is and they love Him and they just can't get enough. Give me more, Jesus. Take the world and all its problems, turn off the news. just give me Jesus. And so Peter, or Mark rather, focuses us in on that particular crowd who sends word. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. It would have been a culturally appropriate thing. Jesus, hey, they're here. You need to go. But verse 33 gives Jesus's response. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Which is a shocking answer, not only because you don't answer something like that with a question, but in those days, most especially in that culture, you don't do that to your mother and your brothers. You don't do that to your family. This was not Jesus being rude or unkind to his family, but rather this was Jesus pointing out that his family in this moment was not doing the will of God. They were attempting to thwart his teaching ministry by calling him out, seizing him, and taking him away. And when it comes to between, between deciding to do the will of your family and to do the will of God, it's a no-brainer, most especially for the Son of God. But I wanna point out something else to you. Mark wrote to people, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, right? He wrote to people most likely in Rome and within the Roman Empire who upon their faith in Jesus Christ would have lost their families. Their families would have said, if you disown the gods of this house, we disown you. And a Christian would have had to say, well, then I'm disowned because I can no longer follow the gods of this house. Jesus is Lord. And they would say, well, then get lost, you're dead to us. Happens in the Middle East all the time. You're dead to us. India, I read a story recently about that. If you follow Jesus, don't ever come back here. Don't you show your face. You are dead to us. We want nothing else to do with you. And Mark's readers would have said, all right, I'm following Jesus. And so imagine, imagine if your family had disowned you And you read this account of the Lord Jesus saying, who are my mother and my brothers? In verse 34, looking about at those who sat around him, not everyone in the crowd, but those specifically who were sitting down to learn at his feet, he looked about at them. He made eye contact, he stared at them with the love that only the Savior could muster up he looked about at them and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And you having been been disowned by your family would read that and you'd say, oh, thank you, Jesus. I may have lost my blood family. I may have lost my earthly family. But Jesus is my brother. And because he has saved others, I have brothers and sisters and mothers that I'll never even know in this life, but we'll be well acquainted with in the next. You see, it's not family first, is it? It's family of God first it does not mean that we dishonor our family in any ways we have the word of the scripture children obey and honor your parents right this is not dishonor in any way but it is a reality that if you choose family allegiance over allegiance to Jesus then by that very action you show that you your family is not Jesus's family and so we see then that the way that you respond to Jesus determines both your fate and your family. If you respond to Jesus by determining that he is a lunatic or a liar, then your fate is forever sealed in an eternity in hell. If you respond to Jesus by trying to derail his program like his mother and brothers did, then your family is not the family of God. In fact, as Jesus told the scribes later, your father is actually Satan. But I want to point out something else to you. At least two of Jesus' brothers did finally understand who he was. James and Jude... We read their letters in our Bibles, showing us that until your dying breath, it is never too late to respond rightly to Jesus Christ. Your fate and your family are determined by the way that you answer two questions Have you sought forgiveness of your sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And secondly, Do you do the will of God? Or in other words, is it your highest priority to obey Jesus? After all, he says his true family are those who do the will of God. If you can truly say that you have sought forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ... And you can truly say that it is your highest priority to do the will of God, even though you sin, even though you do that imperfectly. But if you can truly say that that is your case, that that is true for you, then my friend, Jesus has secured your eternity with him because you are in his family. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. We who were once the family of Satan, you have made the family of God. We praise you for your work of delivering grace. We praise you for your power in binding Satan and in plundering his house. And we praise you that you have taken us as your plunder. And yet we are not just goods to you, items that you have plundered from Satan, but we are your brothers and sisters. We long for your coming, Lord Jesus Christ, but we pray that you would keep us faithful to continually do the will of God and to tell others about who you are, the very Son of God. We ask that you would press the truths of your word upon our hearts and forever change us for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.